So let's turn to this passage, Genesis chapter 18. I thoroughly recommend that you go home and read both chapters, the rest of chapter 18 and also chapter 19. I'm kind of going to be trying to fill in a bit of that today. We've not read the whole of those chapters, but they're all part of the story. There's an old song you might remember that goes something like this. There are more questions than answers. Uh, We'd all like answers to all kinds of questions, but often the questions, when we truly let them search our hearts, are actually more creative for us. They're more revealing than the answers. Genesis 18 contains two key questions. The first one is actually in the bit of the chapter that we didn't read, verse 14. We read there, is anything, <coughs> excuse me, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now that's in the context of these three mysterious visitors turning up, visiting Abraham, verse 1. We find out in the course of the chapter that this is actually the Lord, astonishingly. And the Lord comes and visits Abraham and his wife, Sarah, And he promises these, well, ancient Abraham and barren Sarah, he promises them a son. And uh, what an astonishing moment. That this is the Lord in in some sort of pre-incarnate appearance. Uh, Theologians call it a theophany. Uh, The Lord graciously making himself known in a relatable way which is astonishing. There's another old song, God is watching us from a distance. Do you remember that one? Actually, he doesn't stay at a distance. This is a wonderful thing about this passage. He doesn't stay at a distance. He draws near. Now, are these three men, are they meant to represent the three persons of the Trinity? Some people think so. Uh, There's nothing here in the passage to suggest that. In chapter 19, if you read on, we read about the two angels. Uh, So maybe the three men are the Lord in in some human form and two angels with him. We needn't get bogged down in that. This is the only incident before the coming of Jesus that we read of God actually eating with a human being as Abraham brings food uh, to, to, to these people. It's astonishing. But this morning we're launching into a new series, as, as Kate said, and we're looking at some of these glorious old Old Testament prayers. That's what we have here. We have a prayer, the Lord and Abraham talking together. And uh, we're going to be looking at, at, at some of these and um, uh, trying to draw on these for help for our own prayer lives on ancient knees, it's called doesn't mean to say you have to have ancient needs to pray. Though in my experience, um, it's only perhaps as we draw nearer or as we mature more fully that we begin to truly learn about prayer. I think that's often the way. It needn't be the way, of course. Um, But uh, if your knees are feeling ancient, if if your knees are feeling young, this series is for you. Um, but, th- but the people who are praying are pretty ancient by now. That's why the, t- the, the title gets its name. Uh, uh, so we, we're in the second half of this chapter this morning. And then we have the second question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That was the first question in, in the context of 
can he really give Abraham and Sarah a son? Uh, the second question is, will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's in verse 25. And now we see what has brought the Lord down to earth. And this is frankly, what well, to say the least, sobering. And the Lord said, this is verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities on the plains in that area where Abraham was wandering, their sin is, the outcry is so great and their sin so grievous that I'll go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. That's what he's come to do. He's heard this outcry, this, the, 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 the um, clamor caused by these cities, summer, so Sodom and Gomorrah. And you can read on in chapter 19. We get a picture of their sin there. And uh, this, is, this is just awful beyond words. In chapter 19, the visitors who should have received, even more so in, well, far more so in the ancient Near East than in modern-day Britain, the visitors should have received nothing but warm hospitality. They are threatened with homosexual rape uh, in, that in that chapter. And sodomy, of course, has become literally the word for a certain type of homosexual practice. Uh, but it's interesting. Although the Bible, I want to be very clear about this, the Bible, both the Old and New Testaments, teaches very clearly, this is what we teach here, this is what I believe the Bible says. The Bible teaches very clearly that, that sex is for marriage and marriage alone. And the Bible defines marriage as between a man and a woman. Uh, that uh, seems clear to me in the Bible. I know that's hugely, I was going to say, a controversial. It's not even controversial today, is it? That's just beyond the pale as far as most people are concerned. But that's what we believe the Bible teaches. That is not because... God hates those who experience same-sex attraction, not at all. He understands far more deeply than the rest of us uh, that situation. And he reaches out with love to those as he reaches out to all of us sinners. And that's the point I want to make, all of us sinners, because although that is the particular example of gross sin given here, um, uh, we should be wary of thinking that this was the one sin that brought down God's judgment. After all, homosexual rape would be no worse than heterosexual rape, would it, in this context? But um, uh, the threatened, uh, yeah, so, so elsewhere we see very clearly that their idolatry, their injustice, their adultery, we see this in passages, uh, for instance, Isaiah, uh, actually, what's happening in Isaiah 1 is that Israel's sin is being compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's actually talking about Israel when he says, you rulers of Sodom. He says, you are like the rulers of Sodom. You're like the rulers of Gomorrah. Um, your evil deeds, take them out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Um, so we see their idolatry. We see injustice. We see adultery um, elsewhere. Uh, Je Jeremiah 23, um, and uh, their pride and greed and complacency we see mentioned in Ezekiel 16. These things were obviously rife in Sodom and Gomorrah, and they draw down God's condemnation. In other words, these cities were being judged for things we all of us know 
are all too present in all of our lives. That's the truth. And that's uh, what we have to understand. The truth is humanity's sin means that we're all born under the death sentence of God's judgment. But he is patient. He gives us time to repent. And full judgment will come at the end of the age when Jesus comes to judge the world in righteousness. But in order to restrain the, the, the treacherous effects of sin that are, that are all around us in the world, in order to also to show up its danger, to show up the damage it does, God does exercise partial judgment in the here and now in certain ways. And we see that here. Sodom and Gomorrah's behavior has become too much. And God plans to bring it to an end. And, and you'll see in chapter 19, that's what happens. It's horrible. It's dreadful. The dreadful, the awful, the awesome judgment of the Lord, which shows like nothing else how dreadful sin is. You know, sometimes parents, as parents, we let our children follow their own course, even though we might not approve. But we want them to see. We want them to understand, to learn for themselves the effect of their foolishness learned by experience after all that's what we've done we've been no less foolish than they have it's like leaving you know leaving their room somebody already asked me this morning how did I get a picture of their room as a teenager um, it's like leaving their room to reach meltdown before we intervene but when you can no longer open the door when they it's all spilling out down the stairs. Or they no longer have any clean clothes to wear because all their clothes, are, their dirty clothes are strewn across the floor. Well, you know, time for intervention has to come, doesn't it? And sometimes a society's collective sin reaches a point of just too much chaos. Too many people are getting hurt. <coughs> and the time call comes to call a halt. And I think that's happened in history. And it happens in in in. in groups it happens in individuals God has reached the point here with Sodom enough is enough but first he's going to have a good look of course the Lord doesn't need to come down to look we know that we understand that he can see from above he knows everything he knows but but in this gracious way he is displaying his justice and righteousness to Abraham he's not going to act on hearsay he sees for himself. But first he speaks to Abraham. Verses 17 to 19. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he'll direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. God has chosen Abraham. This is God's initiative and this is the doctrine of election. Another highly controversial doctrine, I know, but there you go. God chooses us before ever we decide to follow him. However, 
this is really important again. Whenever this is mentioned in Scripture, or almost, or let me say almost always whenever this is mentioned in Scripture, there is a question raised and a question answered. It is this, chosen for what? In other words, you can't just be chosen and that's it. You are chosen for a purpose. And the purpose is really important to grasp because it knocks on the head any idea of an exclusivity in terms of that chosenness. We are not chosen for a cozy life of privilege so that we can get away with stuff that the rest of the world can't. That we're God's favorites and he doesn't care about the rest of the world. That's not what we're chosen for. Forgetting everyone else. We are chosen. Abraham was chosen here. It specifically says, chosen to lead his family, to keep the way of the Lord, to do what is just and right. In this way, we're told the full promises of the covenant will come streaming through Abraham's line. And notice what they say, culminating in all nations on earth being blessed through him. This is the purpose of God's covenant with Abraham. To bless all nations through him. Abraham is chosen not over against the rest of the world, but so that the rest of the world might receive the Lord's blessing too. This is how God so often works in scripture, the one bringing a blessing to the many. You can trace that theme throughout. And it is glorious. Walter Brueggemann uh, writes this. Abraham is to be a bearer of divine blessing through whom the life-giving energy and goodness of God are mediated and made available in the world. Wherever Abraham will go, the chance for life from God is palpably on offer. And this is what will happen. As Abraham leads his household in doing what is right and just, as he models godly behavior, to not only to his household, but to the world around. So now we begin to understand why this conversation is so important. This is not just any old person. This is Abraham, chosen by God to fulfill his covenant and to bring a blessing to the world. So this is key. The righteous Lord, the judge of all the earth, is letting Abraham into his council. In a special way, yes, the one let in in a special way so that Abraham can begin to understand what righteousness and justice is so to lead his household in doing what is right and just and so bring a blessing to the world. This is not Abraham bargaining with a harsh God, God trying to get him to reduce the tariff. It is the righteous and just God revealing his heart to Abraham so that Abraham can walk in his ways. And that's what prayer is all about. What a wonderful way of thinking about prayer. It's not us trying to twist God's arm. It's us just getting to grips with who God is and responding to that in our lives. That's what prayer is. That's what's happening here. Abraham is interceding for Sodom. That's an old word. To intercede is to, 
to stand on behalf of someone and plead their cause. That's what he's doing. He doesn't want Sodom destroyed. That worries him. That upsets him. But as he prays, he's learning about God's heart. He's learning to trust him. And that's, that's how prayer works for us too. Prayer is never about us trying to get our shopping list approved. It's about us seeking God's face and coming with our concerns. We do come with our concerns and our issues. And as we do so, we learn to know God more and more. And we are shaped by him in his likeness so that our concerns and issues actually start to marry up with his concerns and issues, then we're truly praying in his name. Truly praying in the Spirit, because the Spirit is in us, and the Spirit is, is working, bringing our prayers to him, and shaping our hearts. And so, Abraham's great concern is expressed, verse 25. This is what he's concerned about. He doesn't want the righteous, far be it from you, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? He doesn't doubt Sodom's sinfulness. He, know, he understands that. He doesn't doubt that sin has to be dealt with. He understands that. But it worries him that the righteous could be swept away with the wicked. And so boldly but respectfully he enters into, into what? Is, is this a negotiation that we have here? He says, what if there are 50 righteous people? 45, I like the way he asks for 45. He says, he doesn't just say 45. What, for the sake of the five less? That's clever, isn't it? And so they go on, 45, 40? If there are 40 righteous people... 30, 20, 10, for the sake of 10, the Lord says, I will not destroy. If you can find 10 righteous people in that city, the whole city is not destroyed at this time. And then the conversation stops. I wonder if you're thinking, why didn't Abraham go further? Five? Two, one. Well, I don't know. He didn't need to, obviously, it seems to me, because this isn't a bargaining ses session. It's about Abraham understanding the heart of God. And I think, this is my take anyway, Abraham reaches the point of confidence in the answer to his question Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord's given, given, given. Yes, for the 40, that, you know, yes, the, for the sake of 10. And now Abraham understands he will do what is right. He will. And the Lord does, actually. The Lord arranges for the righteous to escape from Sodom. The truth is, Sodom is destroyed. Have I said that already? Sodom is destroyed. This conversation has showed Abraham that he can trust the Lord to act justly. He's aware, the Lord is aware of Abraham's issue. He will be merciful, he will spare the city if he possibly can. But doing what is right does not involve Sodom getting off with it. God's judgment is a terrible thing. 
It is. But it is a good thing too. People say they object to the concept of a God of judgment. That is another thing that is, is you know, people just commonplace objection to, to the Bible and to Christianity. Those same people, of course, they get angry about injustice. They do. Of course they do. They would be horrified at the thought, for instance, of the easy example, they would be horrified at the thought of a Hitler walking free. We all would, or a Harold Shipman, or whoever you can think of. So, we get angry about injustice, and yet we don't like the fact that the Bible talks about judgment. There's a problem there. Of course, often what we mean is, okay, justice for everyone else, or for the really bad cases, for the one apple that spoils the barrel, or whatever the proverb says. You know, judgment, justice is good, it is right, it is proper. Because the alternative is for sin to have the last word, for evil to rule, to go rampant and to consign us all to hopeless destruction. That is the only alternative to justice. You can't have it any other way. And so Abraham learns to trust God's judgment. That's what's happening here. And it happens as he prays. He gets to know God as he prays. It's people who spend time with the Lord in prayer who learn to trust him. It's not that they won't have questions. They'll still have questions. They'll still have issues. They'll still have many, many things they don't understand. It's possible they'll have more things they don't understand at the end of praying than they did at the start of praying. That's the way it goes. I mean, God is infinite. What are we doing? We're just paddling at the edges. There's just loads of other stuff to get into. Normally, we don't even get anywhere near that stuff because we give up praying. But they learn to trust the Lord. That's the key. That's what's important. Rather than those who just run in the opposite direction. Or who shout their complaints at God from afar. Who don't really want answers to their questions. They want to use their questions as an excuse for keeping their distance from God. And to dismiss him. And dismiss having to take his word seriously. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, yes, he will. Abraham learns to trust him. For ten righteous people, the city will have be, would have been saved. That's remarkable. There's a principle right there, isn't there? That on the basis of a certain group of righteous people, others will be saved. That's worth remembering. That's helpful to us. Ten could not be found. But there is encouragement here. Ten people out of a whole city could have had that effect. This shows us the influence righteous people can have. And I know none of us here are righteous in the sense that we're, we're fully sinless. Of course not. We are righteous. We are covered with Christ. If we're believers, we're covered in Christ's righteousness. Hallelujah. And we're learning to walk in his ways. We can have an effect. We can. Those who act justly. Those who do what is right can have real influence on our society. And when we tend to despair over the bad things we see, let's take courage. Let's continue to walk in God's way. Let's intercede. 
and our influence will be brought to bear. Christians are doing this in countless ways throughout Reading, throughout the country, throughout the world. They're doing this and they're making a difference. They're bringing God's kingdom to bear. Far in excess, our influence is far in excess of what our small numbers might suggest. The powers that be in any given city or town, if they want something done, but they can't pay for it, they know where to go. Where do they go? To the churches, the church leaders. They do. We can have an effect. We have heft. Don't know how that makes you feel, to know you have heft. Perhaps you don't think that's very positive. You have heft. In the council room of God, you have power and influence that that the the town councillors, that the MPs, that the members of of cabinet, that world leaders and governors can only uh, and government can only dream about. You do, because you're right there next to the King of Kings, and you have His ear. Uniquely allowed into that council room, chosen to use that influence for the blessing of others. And, by the way, is anything too hard for the Lord? Remember what Bruegemann said? You know, this is glorious. Bearer of divine blessing. He's saying it's about Abraham. Bearer of divine blessing, through whom the life-giving energy and goodness of God are mediated and made available into the world, in the world. While you're, if you're in Christ, if you're believing in Christ this morning, whose descendant are you? In Christ, I'll tell you, you are Abraham's, grafted in. And this comes down to sit on your head in Christ. Bearer of divine blessing, through whom the life-giving energy and goodness of God are mediated and made available in the world. Wherever Kate goes, Wherever Pauline goes, wherever Ralph goes, wherever Lisa goes, the chance for life from God is palpably on offer. Wow, aren't you significant? You really are. That's astonishing. And that is why he is so eager to meet with you in his council room in prayer. Some people complain from time to time about their MPs. You know, they never turn up for their surgery. They don't have have surgeries very often. Or they don't appear in Parliament very often. We get those records. That comes up, doesn't it? And we feel aggrieved because they're representing us. Well, we represent the world to God. What does it say if we don't appear in God's council room in prayer? That's an abdication of responsibility, isn't it? Right there. Now, you might be thinking, hold on. How just is it evil people seemingly getting off scot-free for the sake of a few righteous? He was going to save the city for ten people. Um... 
Well, firstly, remember, we're only talking partial judgment here. This is not full judgment to come when Christ returns. That will come for each individual as he searches our hearts. If God had restrained judgment here on this day, the guilty would not have got off scot-free. They would still, they would have had more opportunity to repent, of course. But God has the power and the duty to bring any life to an end. When he sees fit, he does. He's the God of beginnings and endings for which we should bow before him in awe, trusting and worshipping awe. And the more time we spend with him, the more we'll reach that point Abraham got to of knowing we can trust him as judge. Now, what stops us from experience? I don't know about you, but what Abraham is, it doesn't sound much like my prayer life, this kind of conversation (coughs) with God. What stops us from experiencing this dynamic of prayer that Abraham experienced? leading to increased uh, trust and and growth in knowing the Lord. What gets in the way? Let me suggest two things. I'm sure there are more, but let me suggest a couple. Firstly, our prayers are too perfunctory. We get stirred up about something. We get moved. We pray about it. But we don't linger with the Lord over it. We don't wait on him. Often... uh, our minds so often quickly move on to the next thing, the next event, the next upset maybe. And there's no space, this kind of dialogue to to develop. We've moved on. Secondly, I think this might be a strong reason actually, we've prayed before. We prayed before for something and we didn't get what we asked for. Not exactly, perhaps not anywhere near. And that's demotivating, isn't it? That demotivates us from praying the next time something troubles us. That raises a question. I know that I said, you know, prayer raises more questions than answers. It raises all kinds of questions, doesn't it? I wonder, are we only prepared to pray if we can guarantee the exact result we want dropping out of the bottom of the slot machine? Because if so, that is the antithesis, that is the opposite of the kind of prayer we see here. Which is prayer that leads to the believer leaning into the Lord further, harder. Even though, indeed, especially when we don't get the results that we, we asked for. We're learning to trust. It might be a not yet and we have to be patient. It might be a, well, you're not really asking for the right thing in line with God's kingdom or what's best for you or for that other person. We're learning to trust. And that takes faith and it takes patience and it takes perseverance. And we need those in prayer. In a couple of places, 2 Chronicles 20, Isaiah 41, we see that Abraham is referred to wonderfully as God's friend. We had that in that hymn we sung. This is my friend, my friend indeed. Oops, I've given away the punchline now. Never mind. Um, God's friend. Genesis 18, we see a little of what this means. Abraham welcomes the Lord into his home. They enjoy food and fellowship together. 
And the Lord shares his plans with Abraham. He reveals his heart. It's a daring episode, really, isn't it? Abraham there with the Lord. Astonishing. Abraham, the friend of God. How outrageous. But then he was special, wasn't he? Abraham was very special. But what do we read from that last supper? Jesus in the upper room. Remember that? John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father I've made known to you. You are my friends if you do what I command. Don't try that line on your friends. It doesn't build friendship, does it? Is Jesus' friendship, you know, conditional on this? I think what he's saying is, I'm your Lord. Primarily, I'm your Lord, so you do what I command. But if I'm your Lord, you are my friend. We can't forget that other side of the relationship, can we? You are my friends. Those who follow Jesus, like those disciples, we can say this too. The Lord, our friend. What a privilege. What a joy. Wouldn't it be great? I don't know what that means for you. You could talk about what it means to be Jesus' friend, to have Jesus as your friend afterwards. Sharing fellowship and food with him. Well, this is what communion is, literally. Eating and drinking in the presence of the Lord, which has a history way back into the Old Testament, gloriously. The elders taken up to the mountain to see God. What did they do? They ate and drink and drank, ate and drank in the presence of the Lord. Astonishing. And then the Lord, um, true companions with him. This is what companions mean, doesn't it? Sharing bread. We share bread and we share wine with Christ. Yes, we remember, of course, we, we, it's all about remembering his death. Of course, but we do that from the, from the point of view of having his presence with us by his spirit. Compan uh, communion has those two sides to it. And sometimes in our tradition, we play up the one and forget about the other. So as we spend time in prayer, we begin to understand some of our master's business. He begins to show us some of these things. We come with our own concerns, or we come with our questions, but it's not that we change God's plans, but rather that our thinking, our lives are brought more in line with his. And so then we're truly praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. He chose Abraham to do what is right and just, while Jesus says he has chosen us, in the next verse, he's chosen us to bear fruit, fruit that will last. Go and bear fruit. Go out into the world and bear fruit. Now, it's only possible because of Jesus, our righteousness. Forget the ten men, the one man. Jesus, our righteousness. For this righteous man, we are saved. And as we respond to his grace, then he can use us to bring blessing to the world around, thus fulfilling the promise to Abraham. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, yes, he will. He will. 
So let's seek his face in prayer. Let's pray for those around. Prayers based not on our righteousness, but on God's mercy, interceding for others, for our society, believing that the God for whom nothing is impossible can use a few struggling, unimpressive believers to influence whole cities for good. Does that make you feel significant? It really should do. Let's pray. Father, we're in awe somewhat of this, uh, this story. It, 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 it astonishes us that Abraham had this conversation with you. And yet, we understand that in Christ, this dynamic is opened to us also. And we thank you. We, we, <laughs> we fall on our knees and we, we, we're just overcome with the thought of that, Lord. So, Lord, stir us up. Stir us up to meet with you. Stir us up to, to spend time lingering, to watch and to wait with you, to bring our concerns and to listen to you, not just to move on quickly. And Lord, stir us up to, to, to represent you to this world around, both in the prayer room, but also in our lives of righteous and righteousness and justice. We need your spirit for that. We know we're pretty frail on our own. Thank you that we have your spirit. We pray for more of him. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, daily. And lead us on. Make us, make us people who just, Lord, that picture of you longing to meet with us and us hanging back is just so ridiculous. Turn that round. I, I'm not turn it round, but make us as eager to meet with you as you are as eager to meet with us. May, this, we, may we see real growth in 2024. In this regard, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.